when we were meeting people for the first time at a conference, you go to shake their hand and they kind of go back like this and then you do the elbow bump and so you started to feel it. But to be totally honest, I didn't really understand what was coming down the path until the following week. The following week, I was at my daughter's gymnastics class, sitting on the bleachers. I get a text from the Napa School District. School's closed for the next two weeks, which were the two weeks before spring break. And that's when I started to panic. Texted my husband, oh my God, what are we going to do with our kids for the next three weeks at home? Three weeks I was worried about, so obviously I had no idea what the universe had in store for us. Um, luckily, things are starting to get back in the right direction. My kids are both in school, hallelujah. Uh, started new school, fourth grade and kindergarten, they're thriving. My husband just returned to the workforce last month. He was a stay-at-home parent over the last two years, so he's very grateful to have a new career. And then, um, as was just mentioned, I just started with Silver Oak three months ago in some change and uh, really enjoying it, really loving it. So one of the first things I got to do during my first 90 days was go through the budget process. And I imagine a lot of us in this room are kind of going through the same thing or maybe blocking it out because we don't love budgets. But here we are trying to plan for the future yet again. And if anything's, life's taught us anything is that we can't predict the future. But lots of good questions to ask as we are doing this. Oops. Told you I'm rusty at this. A little heavy-handed with the clicker here. So, you know, one of the main questions we're, we're asking ourselves is, what are we trying to get to next year? Are we trying to get back to normal? Is normal 2019? Things were very different in 2019. We did a lot of, we saw a lot of visitors come in, no appointment, belly up to the bar, could be a free-for-all over the weekends, especially September, October. Different, ex different experience, right? So now we're doing the seated tasting experience by appointment, and there's a lot more that happens behind the scenes to make that happen. And it, it costs more money, it does, to, to drive that experience. But going back to what Caitlin mentioned, which I loved, is that on-premise experience is when you're really building brand. So in our gut, we feel like this is the right thing to do, but as I'm sitting in a budget meeting with my CFO, he's really questioning me on that, and that's good, he should. So there are questions that we're talking about. You know, do we keep doing this? What are the advantages? What are the trade-offs? Does this model truly improve engagement, or is it just an anecdote that we're all spreading around? Are the customers actually spending more, and what the heck do we do next? So we'll go through some of the advantages, uh, as illustrated by one of our uh, talk reservation reports in September. Higher demand, right, because we changed the model, so we didn't have as much room to come in, and so we have people clamoring to get a tasting in, but there's a super long wait list. So we're, so we're seeing that we're booked up throughout the week, which is great, being booked up midweek, when those could be tougher days historically to fill up. What's nice as an operator is it's easy for you to plan your staffing, which is the highest chunk of your operating expenses are, are the, the staffing. And it's also, I think, a better experience for your staff themselves because they kind of know what to expect coming in. They know how many tables they're going to host that day. They get a feel for, for what's coming, so it makes them feel a little bit more prepared to meet the day. Again, it's less of a free-for-all. I personally didn't love bellying up to a bar to try and do a tasting. It's, it was really difficult. It just didn't feel as engaging to me. That was my personal preference. But we did see customers were spending more in this new experience, and we loved that. But of course, I can't be honest with our CFO without also talking about some of the trade-offs, right? So 
in this model, you definitely have limited capacity, so less room for growth. In total, we were seeing 35% less total customers this year versus the same time frame in 2019. So that's, that's a big drop. And overall, total net sales were down 10% because that average sale wasn't quite yet making up for that volume drop in customers. A couple more things just to share. It, the other thing that was interesting was the new customer funnel that definitely was affected by this model. So we saw 35% less new customers come in this way. Existing customer volume, those people that had visited us before, that dropped by 32% as well. But again, that new customer spend went up 40% from 2019, which was enticing. Existing customers spent almost 30% more than 2019. And as a whole, as a cohort, they spent, they brought in 60% more dollars than new customers. So some things to keep in mind as we walk through this. So as I'm sitting there with the CFO and going back and forth and, and talking about different things, in my gut I'm thinking, I know that we're budgeting for 12 months. Okay, that's what, that's what we do, we budget for 12 months. But I just wondered out loud, isn't this better in the long run, that brand building? Won't they be more loyal with us up front as they come through the door? Won't that pay off down the road? So I had to take a look at our information and kind of work up this long-term customer migration model. So this is where we get really data heavy, so bear with me, I'll try to make it a little painless as possible. So at first I looked at retention. So historically, going back to 2015, looking at those individual new co cohorts, new customer cohorts that came in each year. So over time, what did they spend that first time? When they came back and spent with us the following year, what did that look like? So first we look at retention. This was really eye-opening for me. So over time, the data shows us, on average, only 9% of the, that new customer cohort that comes in through the door, only 9% of them come back the following year and spend. And what I mean come back, it could be in the tasting room, it could be in the club, it could be e-commerce. I was looking at this as kind of a holistic model. So that kind of hurt me right here. We're losing 91% of the people that, that walk through the door. But then you see it stabilizes after a while. So once they come back that second year, then 74% of that group sticks around, 81% of that group sticks around, 79, and so on. So that was interesting. So then we looked at the spend, right? So the new customer comes in, the following year they decide to come back with us, they increase their spend by 218%. And that was exciting. I was like, all right, we're onto something here. This is gonna be good, this is gonna prove me right. I love being right, I hate being wrong. Um, and then over time, that starts to stabilize a little bit more too, you know, a, a big jump that first year, and then it's 114% of the previous year, 103, 115, and 98%. I just got stuck on that retention number. Again, that really just bugged me. Wow. I, so that's when we lose the most amount of new customers. But of the people that stay, that's when they're spending a lot more. So we'll come back to that. There we go. So I'm thinking, okay, so I gotta, how do I visualize this for the finance team? Let's, let's do a simulation, right? Based on those percentages that we looked at in terms of retention, average sale. These are all based on the percentage growth that we see in these areas, but I started with the baseline of a fake number, so we don't see 10,000 people come in a year, but I just use that for the simplification of this exercise and not to give away data that our CFO probably doesn't want me to give away. So let's say in 2019, we start with 10,000 visitors and their average sale is 100 bucks. So in that start year, that cohort gives us a million dollars. 
Remember, that drops down by over 90%. So when you, the next year, we get 902 of those customers to come back and purchase. They, their average sale goes way up. And then we see that broken out over time. So over time, that ends up being $1.7 million from that new cohort. So then I run the simulation with what we're seeing now. Less, a lot less customers. My volume starts out way lower, right, than 2019. So I only have 6,500 new customers coming through the door. They're spending a lot more, which is great. And they're spending more over time. But I'm at under 1.6. That's such a bummer. <laughs> I really wanted to, to be right in the simulation. And I'm not, not quite there yet, right? We still have a gap of 9% in net revenue. So then you think about, okay, what are some other ways we could close the gap? So we could try to get more people in, increase that new customer cohort. So to close the gap that way, I need to find 650 new purchasing customers. So I don't know about you, but I'm a little nervous hanging my hat on assuming we will get that many new people through the door. I don't know. Going back to pre-COVID, do you remember some of the buzz things that the industry was talking about when we were worried about what was happening in our industry? Cannibalization from cannabis, hard seltzers, millennials. The other thing, too, is um, in Silicon Valley Bank reported on this several years in a row, they were talking about tasting rooms in Napa and Sonoma County, their average visitor account each month was going down over time. And what was interesting about that, it wasn't because there was less people coming to Napa and Sonoma, it was because tasting rooms were starting to do the seated tasting model and people were spending more time at fewer wineries. So that was a few years ago, and a lot more of us have adopted that model, so I sense that might continue to affect that trend, right? People hitting less wineries on their trips. So then, okay, well, what about we just increase our average sale, right? We increase it 10%, we close the gap. And I would love to do that. Can we do it 10%? I don't know. I keep hearing the word inflation over and over and over again, and people are sensitive to it, and they're, they're worried about it. So can I just assume people will spend that much more money with us next year when they're already opening up their pocketbooks a bit this year? So then I go back to that favorite stat of mine, the retention trend. What if we just did a better job at that? Those new people coming through the door. What if instead of losing... 91% of those people, what if we only lose 89% of them, which still sounds like a high number to me, but what if? Small steps, right? So running through the simulation, I highlighted the number in blue, that's where that number changes. That's only 130 additional people from the previous simulation. So trying to get 130 people that have already hung out with us, enjoyed our wines, we've had an experience with them, I just need to make sure that they purchase again that second year. That sounds a lot easier to me than finding 650 brand new customers to walk through the door and then hope I can get them back in the door next year. And that gets me about flat to 2019, okay? So lots of data talk. Now we gotta get back to the human side of it and how does that translate into strategy and experience. So uh, one thing I do wanna go back to is that, that talk calendar where we had lots of red because we were fully booked. That did beg a good question. Are we charging enough for our experiences? So in some cases, yes, as we're looking forward to 2012, we are tweaking some of our pricing to make sure that it's a little bit more in line with the demand so we don't have to turn away um, as many people that truly want to come in at that price point. So then we look at pre-season booking opportunities, right? So 
I know once we get towards the summer months, we will have no problem filling up those appointments again, but am I filling it with the right cohort of customers? And shouldn't I try to go after the people that came to see us this year when things are really difficult, the people that were willing to try out the new seated tasting experience, the people that have that memory of maybe, uh, I see this a lot, people kind of reunited with their friends that they haven't seen since COVID hit, you know, so they have some happy memories tied to us. Don't we want to try to get them back again? And that also includes reaching out to your existing loyal members, right? So as we get closer into the season, you find that cohort of people and say, we do have some bookings opening up over the weekend. I see you came last year to celebrate a birthday. I see you came last year to celebrate an anniversary. Try to be a little bit more proactive in getting those people first and getting them in the door. So that's when, what we do to, when people start booking. But then we talk about, as we get closer to that experience, the pre-arrival tactics. And I have some really fun examples of this later. But again, going back to talk, you have a spot where customers can write in notes like, I am here celebrating a birthday or an anniversary or reunited with friends. That's really helpful for the team to know what to look for when those people come in. And if somebody's saying, I come all the time, hopefully they're also seeing that and not giving them the same spiel that give everybody that walks to the door, right? They already know your brand story, so have it be about something else. And then, of course, you still need to keep the new customer funnel going to some extent. So this is what, what I love is it's no longer an either-or conversation. Do you do bar tastings? Do you do seated appointments? You can do both. Bar tastings are great for people that they didn't plan ahead or they just had a little extra time and they were down the road and they were hoping that you could squeeze them in. And instead of having to say, oh, you don't have an appointment, I'm so sorry, we can't help you out. But we'd love to have you for a seated tasting. We don't have slots available, but we'd love to have you come join us at the bar for a splash of some wine. And then maybe we can help you book an experience a little bit down the road. So that's another opportunity to look for. And that will help you with your new customer acquisition. So going back to that pre-arrival example, this is, this is something that I really get excited about. So Timeless is a wine that the Silver Oak family released last year, the 2017 vintage. It was this inaugural vintage. Did really well online, sold out relatively quickly. So now we're into our second vintage, and the buzz isn't as high as it was with that inaugural vintage. And while we know that we'll still sell out of the wine, it's, it's taking a little bit longer. So how do we help with the trajectory of getting it to sell out? How do we build up the momentum? So this is going back to the pre-arrival discussion. So we, we started looking at future bookings a week out and seeing who was coming in. Right? Is somebody coming in for a special occasion? There was one client that particularly stood out to me. It was somebody that had come multiple times to Silver Oak. They bought our high price point wines. He was bringing his boss and a bunch of clients that he wanted to impress. Okay, so that's stuck in my mind. We saw people that spent a lot of money on Silver Oak just in general. Okay, that's also a good cohort to look at that might be interested in Timeless. These people bought Timeless last year, but haven't yet this year. Let's make sure we give them a pour. So we looked at those different examples, and it wasn't that much time. It didn't take that long. In that week, we got $17,000 from three different customers because we had taken the time to make sure hey, let's give them the special pour. Because this is an, ex I should have mentioned this at the top, this is an expensive wine, it's five for us, it's 525 for a three pack, so it's a consideration. You know, it, it takes a while to, to want to purchase a wine like that. You want to taste it, but you don't want to taste it to everybody if you don't know if they're really going to purchase it. So that was an example that I loved. So 
a lot of what I did during this process, I'm just very curious by nature, and that's very helpful because you start asking all the different questions and listening to the questions that people are asking you. So if the CFOs ask me questions, I'm like, that's legit. I should find out a little bit more about that and start thinking about different pieces of data I might have that can help me get to an answer. Sharing insights and connecting the dots is really helpful. What I forgot to mention with the timeless piece is we have a customer care team and somebody was calling about an order and they happened to mention that they were coming in and they said, oh, is that new timeless out yet? And customer care said, yes. They said, oh, I'd really love to taste it. I'm on it. So they made sure to connect the dots with our tasting room staff and let them know that that customer was coming and that helped turn around that sale. That was great. It's data is only so helpful if you keep it to yourself is the point I'm trying to get at. Embrace the unpredictable. You know, I could have, when I first did that spreadsheet back then and saw that my thoughts that, oh, this is going to pay off in the long run, that initial model didn't work out, I could have just tossed it out the door and moved on. But I realized that the answer could be found elsewhere within the same parameter of information. I just needed to look at it a little bit differently. So don't get too bogged down in not getting the answer that you want and maybe see what else you, you can learn from it. Don't assume the answer is either or. It wasn't about, do we do seated tastings? Do we do bar tastings? And then be curious and keep experimenting. Sometimes you have to experiment several times. It doesn't always work the first time. So much of this is luck. Can we be honest? So much of this is luck in getting people at the right time. So try not to get too you know, dismayed if something doesn't work out the first couple times. Give it I think that's it. All right. Very insightful. Does anybody have any questions about this talk or this topic? Can you hold on for just one second? She's going to bring a mic so that we can all hear you. Thank you. Are you using a, did you build your own software to handle all these seatings or use something off the shelf like TAC or something like that to, to manage so, all these people? And there's a few different things in play. Yes, we use TAC for a reservation system and what I love about it. We were just starting to use it at Coppola when I left, so I never got to really geek out behind the scenes. So I'm, I'm loving that we have this here. So there's a lot of great reporting in there, especially on the pre-arrival where you can see the customer, if they've had previous visits, who's coming, which seating, which um, tasting that they're, they're working towards. We have a proprietary POS and CMS system that Silver Oak uses, but a lot of this was also Excel <laughs> behind the scenes. So what I need, the data that I needed to have in order to do that work in Excel, I needed to make sure that every customer record, I could, I could at least know when that customer started purchasing with us. That was really important to me. The reporting functionality in our proprietary system allowed me to pull sales data from people that started within a certain date. So I could say, start with customers that started in that year 2015, and then show me what they purchased 2017-2018. In the interest of sharing insights, of has anybody or does anybody have any things that they're grappling with that they're trying to figure out or any discoveries that they've made? No, you guys have it all figured out? I love it. Are you done with your budgets? <laughs> no? <laughs> Did you have a question? No? I'm just so Yeah. 
You know, misery loves company. We got you. I actually have a question for yeah. you. So I know that aside from your brand being relatively iconic, what do you do that differentiates your seated experience in your tasting room from your competitor down the street to keep that retention, to keep those people in that seat a little bit longer to maximize your profit? What makes yeah. that experience unique? You know, one thing I was very impressed with when I started working there, again, I worked at the family Coppola for 21 years. I grew up there. So I had a lot of anxiety of working at a new company. I didn't know anything else, really, besides I worked at a grocery store for two years before then. But as my friend Ina will attest to, you know, we had a very special company culture, and so that, that mm -hmm. meant a lot. And so I didn't know what that would be like. The company culture there is amazing, and these pe the people we have in their tasting rooms, our hosts, they have been there 20, 50, so many double-digit, tenured people that have been there. I mean, they believe in the brand, they feel it, and they extend that to the customers. Right. I can't tell you how many people they make reservations, and they say, can I get Tom Walsh? I love that. I want, I want Tom Walsh. So, you know, that's, that's not a data point. That's, it's about, at the end of the day, it's about the customer experience, and that's a human thing. It's not a formula. Right. Yeah. That's great. Thank you yeah. for sharing that. All right. Thank you. Any other questions? Okay, let's give Janine a round of applause. Good job.